Look around. Everywhere these days, people are crying out for effective leadership. There's no mistaking it any longer. Men, especially leaders, are struggling, emasculated by imposed rules, stereotyping, and leadership models that are no longer working. There are many women who are doing a much better job at leadership than the men, and we need to recognize them. We need their help too. Welcome to Well, the Women's Expressions on Leadership, Learning, and Liberty podcast show, and I'm its host, John Krotek. This is the show where women can help us men to be better men, more effective leaders. Our guest, our guest for this episode of WAMP is Kim Justice, and um, she's a pretty fantastic person. Let me tell you a little bit about her before we start asking her some questions. She's an author, and she's an artist, and she's also a 12-year experienced radio show host herself. In fact, I met Kim uh, a few years back on her brain. What's the name of the show? Brain Injury Radio Network, see, and my see, show is Recovery Now. See, we're both a little bit, <laughs> we got a story about brains, but that's how I met yeah. Kim. We had crossed paths before, and she was gracious enough to let me share my story on her show, so she's reciprocating. Um, the thing about Kim is she was in the man's world way before women really started to get there, especially in the financial world. She spent 25 years as a financial consultant, and then she had, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, she suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm, and it almost killed her. It's taken her a long time to get back, and she's done it in great, in great time and great speed, and she's, she's together now. Um, but during that time of her own recovery from her own brain injury, she became a driven advocate for others who had also suffered through brain injuries. Hence the reason her own radio show and people who have suffered with substance abuse and PTSD, primarily veterans and athletes who have had head injuries and people like herself who had uh, brain aneurysms. Um, these brain, these game changing brain injuries, uh, we understand it who have had them and, and she has led the charge to let people uh, learn more about it, which I think is just awesome. Another cool thing about Kim and why I think her heart is with the veterans is she comes from a long line of veterans. In fact, her family goes way back to the American Revolution. Um, I think that's pretty cool. It's a lineage that hasn't been broken with Kim, and she continues the great tradition of freedom and liberty, and especially with the people that have worn the uniform. Yes. She believes what they all have in common is the, real, is the realization, and this is brain injury, that we can never go back to who we were and that we, we deal with our demons as best we can when we suffer through these injuries and finally taking action to move forward in life. And, and we were just talking before we came on the show and started recording the journey that it's been and how excruciating it has been at times for us and people like us. So this new path that we are on as one of recovery and one of embracing light and, and, and battling the dark demons inside. Kim believes that it is incumbent on each of us to value and to use our efforts for the greater good of humanity. She thinks that leadership comes 
or not does not come from a title, but by the actions of actualizing our own purpose, sharing with others how we got here or there, being innovative and creative, ethical and unafraid to speak our truth. The Kim, that means honoring the flag, the history of the United States of America, our constitutions, our constitution, not constitutions and our constitution, but, but our values and the veterans who paid the price of our admission to the freedom to be able to do also. I think that's, that's character right there. And I thank her for that. And another cool thing about Kim, and I love this probably the most, is she's unapologetically all woman and forever appreciates a few good men. And I, I just say I'm, I'm humbled and I'm honored uh, to have Kim here. If you want to see more of her, we'll put this in the notes. You can go to inaflash.org and learn more about what Kim Justice, and it's not justice like, like justice, it's just us. And we'll have all that information for you. But uh, uh, thank you for being here, Kim. And wow, <laughs> I feel Thanks honored. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I, and I love your creativity. I love your innovation. I love your convictions. I love what, what is part of your soul. And what we want to do with this show, Kim, by the way, is the second episode, and we're, we're, we're going to move forward with this. But what we want to do with this show is we want these ladies like Kim to tell us about themselves in their own words and what they were taught about boys and men growing up, what their experiences were. And then hopefully through that story, we can deem some tidbits and some tips to help us to be better leaders ourselves and to be better men. And by doing that, by virtue of doing that, we're going to be able to help each other and to learn from each other. But, you know, let me ask you this. Let's get right to it, Kim, because I really I'm done talking. It's more about you and how you can help us. You know, tell us a little bit about your childhood. And then as you were growing up as a young girl, young woman, you know, what were you taught about boys? and What did you learn after being around boys? Well, I was an only child, daughter of a Marine and an Italian mother. I'm Italian and Irish. So because I didn't have brothers or sisters, there wasn't, um, I was raised to think I could do and be whatever I wanted to. So I wasn't taught to be how to fulfill a male role or how to fulfill a fee female role. Um, I was free to fulfill a Kim role and find out who that was going to be. Um, but for anybody who's a daughter of a Marine, you know that you, you learn some things, <laughs> you know, how to bounce a quarter off your bed really young and um, integrity and that there are rules, you know, there are rules. From my mom, you know, being an Italian mother, um, you also learn you can't keep them from speaking their truth, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that's that, you know, there, there's also some rules there, but I was pretty much free to um, be able to discover 
who I was going to be and, and sex wasn't an issue. Now, one of the things coming up, though, I was a attractive and modeled and was in some movies and had a really full teenage years. And a lot of the interaction with guys either was totally based on looks. And so you never really knew who the other person was because it was an instant um, chemical thing, like I say, based on looks. Um, and so if you ever got to really know the core of that person, um, you know, for me, the relationship was usually over before that time came, um, which was sad. Or men were intimidated by me because I was confident and I was assured uh, with what I was doing. And really, there was nothing to be afraid of on my part, but it was just the confidence. I think they didn't know how to be around me. And that's unfortunate because I found out years later and we'll, we'll go to years later and the difference between um, how my relationship with men evolved. But uh, in the beginning, that was that. Was that you know, as so far as the girl. So how did you view the, the boys then? How did you, did you, you didn't trust them or you just, you, they were unsure of you because you intimidated them. You, did you just view them as scared guys or how did you, how did that work? Well, I dated older men for most of the time because they seemed where I went to high school, for example, when I went to high school a million years ago, um, everybody where I went to school was either a jock or a head. Now, I know I have some interesting reflections going back about why they had that term dumb jock back in the old days. Now that I've suffered a brain injury and been in the trades for a long time, if, if you want to put it that way, um, or they were bookish. And my high school, it, it was the first year that they started arranging courses like they do in college. Um, so it wasn't 12 hours in a row. I really wasn't a jock or a head back at that time. And so I arranged all my classes early in the morning, got out about noon, and then I went and worked. I really came into my own in college, and you'll probably remember this word. Some people might not know it, but um, I went to the University of Nebraska at Omaha, where there were a lot of bootstrappers. So there were a lot of older men coming back who had a lot of experience traveling, living away, serving in the military. And I found that more intellectually attractive 
to be able to have a grown-up conversation with someone than I did some of the th- some of the things that guys my own age were doing, which was, you know, I don't know, drinking beer and getting in fights and doing whatever it is they were doing. Um, a, a rite of passage for guys, but I just kind of missed that and skipped over it. Um, That's probably a good do. thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they do what they do, but um, I I just was interested in people that were intellectually, men that were intellectually stimulating, you know, whatever their experience is. Nobody had to be a Rhodes Scholar or anything like that, but somebody who took an interest in the world and put themselves out there in it had a level of maturity that I didn't find in guys my own age. That was what I was going to say. The maturity level seems like it was an attraction, you know, mm-hmm. and we know you, you mentioned something, the rite of passage, and, and we had spoken about that and, and the stereotype or the, 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 you know, of the male or the, we talked about knuckle dragging modus operandi in this mold that, that guys want to fit into. Well, you know, after talking to you just now, I realized that that wasn't an attractive for anybody of the opposite sex and, pra- and probably chased away more girls than, than guys need to have. I don't know, but you know what I'm saying? It's the maturity is, is definitely um, maybe guys are given more rope to be immature. I don't know. Well, you know, we're not born mature. It's something we grow into. And I don't know, you know, in high school, there was a lot of girls that like the, you know, the quarterback and all of that kind of thing. I just, I wasn't, interested personally you know that just wasn't my interest and part of that again probably has to do with how I came up because being an only and not having siblings I interacted a lot my folks had a lot of friends they were very young my folks were high school sweethearts they got married king and queen of the prom most likely to do everything in the yearbook um they wind up getting to graduation and I'm gonna be coming and so they both came from very poor families and excuse me my dad joined the Marine Corps because he wanted to get an education they both had a desire to do better than where they came from and they weren't going to get that help from their families and so he joined the Marines. I was born, we stayed at my grandparents' house, my mom and I. And when I was about 13 months old, we took the train to Quantico, Virginia, where I met my dad for the first time. So, you know, they were 18 when they got married and kids themselves, right? And they've got this kid. And so, when I was growing up, we had a lot of people around the house, their friends, and I was there around their friends. And I think, you know, that was one of the more unique things about me is I was exposed more to adults at a young age than other children. You know, most of those people weren't going to go on and have their kids for another five years or so. Um, And so I spent a lot of time around adults when I was younger. And I think that's why 
I found it attractive still <laughs> is people that I can learn something from, you know, who have been around. I've always had an inquisitive, inquiring mind. And, and um, so that's just kind of the way it, it rolled. I spent more time around adults than, than, um, and saw, you know, what I would want to mirror and what I wouldn't want to mirror out of those adults. So, yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, that being said, you know, you bring up a lot of interesting issues, especially being an only child, but, you know, so you, we have these roles, you know, your parents were young. My parents were actually young too. I think my mom was 19 when she got married. My dad was 21 and you were a Marine Corps brat. I was an army brat. Um, you know, as far as the roles go, you know, what is, you know, masculinity and femininity? What is masculinity? What did you learn about it? What, what, did, what did that mean to you? What was the role of a male in, in, in the home that you were growing up in? What did you infer from all of that? Well, later I grew up in a pretty traditional family model you know, where my father had a certain drive to succeed and, you know, the Marine Corps primed him <laughs> and then, oh, yeah. you know, he went on to, to go to college and it was interesting because they killed the GI Bill while he was in the Marine Corps, which really sucked for him. And so when he came back, he worked full time to he went to college full time and worked as a bartender at night full time to get himself through college in three years. And so a very strong work ethic um, was demonstrated to me and that things don't get dropped in your lap. You work for them at whatever level that is now. My mom, you know, later when it gets to the point where he's through college and, and he does get the first part of his career, my mom was home and her job at that time was being a mother. And that is a job, you know, um, and something I want to talk about in, in a couple minutes. But during the time where he was working and going to school, she had <clears throat> she had been equally athletic as a woman. She was a majorette and she taught baton lessons. So she'd put me in a bag and bring me and plop me down. Of course, I was twirling when I was a young girl. Um, and then some nepotism came in and I led the, the uh, marching <laughs> group, but um, she worked you know, to help support the cause. It was something that they both wanted. They both wanted more than how they came up. And so they had a joint mission, if you will. And that mission meant that she stepped up when she needed to and was working. And then later she could have still done that. You know, if she wanted and everything, you know, you think about in retrospect, she probably could have had the most successful baton and dance studio in town. Everybody 
knew her. They knew her region wise and otherwise, mm-hmm. and she could have gone down that road, but she made a choice to be a mother. And so then it becomes a rather traditional family at for that time where the men was the man was the primary breadwinner and the woman was the mother um, who instilled a sense of family and values and and that into the children. And that's one of the things today I find interesting is you know, kids are getting the values of whoever works at minimum wage at the daycare center. Not so much the family values. We used to sit down around the dinner table every night. So as busy as my dad was and busy as my mom was, we always had dinner at the table together. And of course, there weren't iPhones and stuff back then. So we were forced to communicate around the dinner table seven nights a week. There was no, we weren't in front on, with TV trays watching TV. You know, we weren't on iPhones. We had to communicate with each other. And so, you know, in that communication was, how was your day? How did your day go? And you got to hear how, um, you know, what happened and how people, how they handled it or didn't handle it. And that was a time where parents could instill the values that they thought were important and and kids could ask questions about it. And you could learn how to be a family and about those role models. And um, people started wanting more later you know it became more about greed more stuff and then the kids first of all back when I was little let's back up for just a minute I wasn't Catholic and I'm not saying anything about that but I did notice they all wore the same uniform everybody was homogenous in that way and I know why they did it but that makes it hard to individuate (laughs) <laughs> no, you know, no, that's when, a that's that's a great point. One thing that you're that I'm getting in in the story of your family, which I think is so very important, Kim, you pointed this out, the underlying teamwork of the man and the woman and the roles they play when they're in a relationship, and especially when they're in a relationship and they decide to have a family. I I, I don't think you could have hit it any more square on the head than that that we've lost some of that in today's world. We can get to that, but go ahead. Well, just, you know, um, there wasn't a way to individuate. And, you know, when you have the freedom to experiment and to come into who you are and not have someone else define who you are, then it's going to be more real and more authentic. And um, so I lost my train of thought, (laughs) which we do in this. But anyway, yes, they had a common goal. And I'm just feeling like when kids are getting raised in daycare centers, 
that the family values and some of the things that I learned growing up are missed because the daycare centers are, are full. And so basically it's a babysitter. It's not a, a parent, but it's become the parent. So, you know, and I don't, you know, are, are you learning how to be a grown up, how to grow into your role? Are you learning family values? Are you learning about patriotism? Or are you just getting dropped off and picked up and then the parents are too tired to put into something that, you know, I would consider to be a, a really important job. And that's actually, you know, raising and impacting your child. And so sometimes that might mean going back, you know, I think of my grandparents, um, the ones my parents wanted to do better than, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, you might take a time out for those kids because they they are going to be the next generation and they are going to be the ones that are demonstrating role models. And if you're not around to instill that in them, then they're getting them from a daycare center. And now we're talking about, you know, hearing on the news that the government would like it to be their responsibility, not the parents' responsibility to groom kids let's let's sit and on that first let's let's sit on that for a second kim um that's a really good point that you raise and, and you know in today's modern techno digital age uh obviously i'm probably in the same generation that you are and definitely the kids the way they're raised now is nothing like we had it and so on and so on but you know what you raise a good point the loss of the individual and placing the responsibility of rearing a child onto a government or an organization or a school, it's almost like some kind of a design. And then- Yeah, that's China, that's not America. So I guess my point yeah. that I lost yeah. for a minute there is that my grandparents lived with a little less because of the difference in job, the difference in education. But I guess my feeling having seen both, and it's, it's not a criticism, but perhaps the ideal would be that maybe you're willing, if you're gonna have kids, to live with a little less and put a little more into your kids for That's a while. That's a great tip and a great point because, and you mentioned China, right? But we talk about the nuclear family. And I can remember, it's very similar to you. Of course, I had two sisters and a brother, a little bit of a different dynamic, but mom was there. She was there for us. And when we all got old enough to not need a babysitter like a mom, mom went, went to work. And yeah. And you know what, Kim, you, you hit the nail on the head. Do with a little bit of less and put more into your children, especially if you make the decision to have a child. 
Right. Otherwise, maybe you make a decision that you're not going to. And I'll share a mistake with you I made. Um, I always thought, I don't have kids. And I always thought that there would be time. Now, because I'm in the same generation as you, I always thought I was going to grow up, get married, and have a family. That was my plan. But right out of college, I went into a male career, uh, what you talked about in the, in the intro. I went into business. I was self-employed. I was very successful at what I did. And I figured there was always time later, later, later. Well, I was 35 when my, I had a ruptured brain aneurysm. And after that, it was advised that I not try to have kids. It could kill me. And I wasn't with the right person at that time. And I didn't feel like being one of those. And I, I, don't, I don't know if I can say that I admire them for trying, but just for the sake of having a kid to take that on by yourself. Because again, you're working full-time, one person, to have that kid, to have it raised by someone in a daycare center or someplace else. And so it didn't, it didn't work out for me. I think that you have to think about this and the priorities because there is time to go out and find that ideal job and to have more, more house, more car, more shit. There is time later. What there's not time for later is to have that, those kids and to impact those kids' lives, to arm them with the best tools, integrity, values, clarity in, in their roles, clarity in who they are as a person, that isn't something that can be done later. You've got one shot at that. That's so, a, yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, but so in light of that, you know, in, today, in today's fast paced moving world with you just said, people want more shit. What, what do you think are, we can probably answer this intuitively, but what do you think are the greatest challenges for men in today's fast paced you know, all about me or the priorities may be askewed. What are the greatest challenges? Well, I know that a sense of masculinity has been trampled all over. You know, it, again, going back to my grandparents' time, you know, the roles were pretty clear what the men did and what the women did. As we evolved and women got into the workplace, something I see lost in a lot of positions and it's reflected in the huge divorce rate. What is it? 50%. It's something probably like more that. than that. Yeah. Probably more than that now. Um, with the new regime that's come in, they're probably not even bothering so, to get married. So the divorce is, you know, the divorce rate's not the same, but um, <laughs> I think just being able to impart, myself and i'm sorry i might have missed the beat on your question we will have to talk about brain injury for a minute so people get what's going on here but oh, i know um, we're okay 
you know, to me, I liked it. Of course, I can open my own door. Of course, in the day, I could light my own cigarette. Of course, there's a lot of things I could do. And like I said, I felt confident and confident in my fem femininity, my, my female mystique. But I liked it when a man opened the car door for me or carried my books or walked me up to the door to make sure that I got in the house safely later on. Um, I think it's fine. You know, I went, I went to work, I was single until I was 45. So um, I went to work and I did my deal, but I never tried to be a man doing it. I respected the man space to do it the way he does it. And I did it the way I did it. And one of the things that really blows me away today, and I'm going to make an important distinguishing factor in a minute, but, um, you know, if a man made a off-color comment to me that a gal would call sexist or whatever they would call it today, I'd say, shut the up and handle it myself. You know, I didn't, I wasn't a victim because a guy said an off-color thing to me and were was acting like a knuckle dragger. I didn't see the need to whine about it, be a victim, get him fired, make it a drama. I just told him to shut the up, you know? Um, and that was that was the end of it. <laughs> no, no, and I, and I get that. And, and you know, this victimology that we see every day, it, it's a valid point. You know, two things that, you, that, you're, that you've hit upon, Kim, one of them is etiquette. And then the other word that you use was sexist. There are some people that believe that opening a door for a woman is sexist, a man and a woman, or some of the things that you mentioned, that that's sexist. And, you know, when we talked about mental health of males these days, in fact, sexism in the workplace or being accused of being a sexist has added further consternation to that role that a man, that some men attempt to fill. So it's, it's, we've got a lot of things working against the, the roles that, that men and women fill. And it's almost like there's this, you talk about mystique and I know what you meant, but there's this blurring of the lines that sometimes don't make any sense at all. Well, men and women have both been known to abuse their power. And that's a problem, you know, when they abuse their their power. Women have done it to men. Men have done it to women. And that was the, the distinguishing category I was going to make. When, the, when people aren't doing that and they're just being a man doing his job and a woman doing her job. As a woman, I didn't have to be the man. Um, and let me explain that to you in terms of what I was doing. I was in sales. I was a financial consultant. I, you know, this was before all the girls turned into the gap generation <laughs> and started cutting their hair and wearing tan pants and tan pants and a white blouse and got homogenous like the Catholic kids I was talking about. It was fine for me to dress up 
and be a woman. And I'll tell you the advantage for me and the girls are shooting themselves in the foot now is that there were a million men in suits trying to go in and sell employee benefit packages to businesses. Mm -hmm. They got brushed off all the time. When I called, I always got in the door. That had something to do with me being a woman. That's great power. That's great power. Hell yeah. Now, here's what you have to do, though. Um, you have to know your stuff once you get in there. You know, because if you're getting in because of the curiosity or because you're different than the million stuff suits that hit on them every day, they're willing to let you in to talk to you. Then you have to stop using that female mystique that you use to get in the door mm. and not move a step further by being a bubblehead. Then you've got to switch back to being focused and knowing your stuff as well as any stuff suit that would walk in the door. And that worked really well for me. You know, it gave me a home court advantage in getting in the door, but then I had to know my stuff to be able to sell it. You know, I sold me by getting in the door being different. Um, I got the sale by knowing what I was talking about and being as capable as you anyone know, else. Yeah, I mean, great, great point for all the ladies listening to it. You know, so talk the talk, but walk the walk, too. You know, we've heard that. And, and, you know, and even though you weren't in the classical position, you know, being a salesperson in the financial industry at that time, you held your own. And so yeah. proof, proof be known that women are capable of filling really any role. Absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't get the thing of wanting to go in um, take the guy's place, be the guy, compete with the guy, and then play the victim card. You can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. You know, you're either the woman who goes in comfortable in your, in your own role model and, and doing your job, and then you handle it yourself the way, the way that I was talking about earlier. You know, I handled myself. But you can't be a strong woman and then allow yourself to play the victim card. To me, that's a real insult to women. I would prefer to do it the way that I did it, <laughs> which is being comfortable in being a female and then being forced to be capable and do that job and be able to handle the interaction between the men and the other women that I'm working with but I can't go in and act like hear me roar like they're doing now and I deserve all of these things because of the past I get automatic entitlements and then cry victim I mean uh, you know I talk about the same thing in in brain injury and it, it you know, it really gags me these days, the level of victim that we're hearing across the board on the news. Everybody's a freaking victim. Well, you know, that's what comes out of being a victim is learned helplessness. And 
these entitlements, our learned helplessness. You're being taught to not be strong. You're being taught to not individuate. You're being taught to feel um, to be dictated, your role to be dictated to you and not to be able to be the architect of that role and feel comfortable in it. No, and no, I, I love that because, you know, that's the second thing you hit upon now, individuation or the lack of, thereof, and then the, um, the victimology of the workplace or of the society, you know, another, another strike or something that we need to be concerned with. You know, what do you think holds, you know, when we look at the men in business, you were around a lot of them, you were, you know, you were like the, you were like what the, the, the yellow duck and the brown ducks, something like that. But, you know, what do you think holds men back from being effective leaders? Well, you've, you know, you got to be willing to put in the time, the determination, the drive, the education, but you, you know, you can't just get a label right now one of the things wrong with a lot of leaders is they were bestowed a label and they didn't have the skill set to match it mm. from That's the a great, top, point. great point from great the top point. up we've got 50 years of losing on top right now you know 50 yeah. years of losing on top and i also feel badly that he was set up you know coming from my brain injury background and I had a ruptured brain aneurysm one he had two okay Hmm. and he's a lot older than me and so that what's going on now was foreseeable that under stress he was going to fold like a house of cards and not be able to handle it so Hmm. um You know, all I can say is true leadership to me is something that's earned. It's not bought and paid for. It's not nepotism, um, which we see a lot of that. Unless the person is as good. You know, you talked about, I don't know if you had this dynamic, but we hear about it a lot. For those that have brothers and sisters, you've got the and at the top right now this happened there was the golden child son Mm. who excelled at everything and the other one that's a crackhead you know because he couldn't live up to that so he's been a decades long um substance abuse pornography abuse because he couldn't live up to the golden child. And there's gotta be a way to be okay with your authentic self and who you really are. Little brother wasn't supposed to be big brother, but everybody has a skill set. And if you try to operate outside your skill set, it's not gonna be successful. You need to find who you are and what your strengths are and then work within your strengths 
to be successful and to be a leader. And what that means is when we learn something, you know, and I'll, I'll use the brain injury example for a moment because I can and because you'll understand this. Uh, hopefully the others will too. Because whether it was a divorce or you, you lost someone to death or divorce, or you, you get a disability or whatever might be the game changer in your life. You've gone along with your life and your plans of how you thought it would be. And then your life is interrupted. Mm. And you spend a lot of time, like I said, I call it the tweener stage um, on my show. Because in the beginning, you think, I'm going to be able to just like, you know, if I get a broken arm, it's, it's going to have a cast. It's going to go through some healing time, some physical therapy, and then it's going to go back to normal the way things were before. And that's the expectation. And in some of these cases with a brain injury, for example, um, things you spend a lot of time in the beginning thinking you're going to go back to who you were before. Well, there's um, a couple things that make that not true. One of them is that you've gone through a traumatic event that is you faced your mortality and nobody knows that like a lot of our veterans, you know, but in this case, in my case, um, I faced my mortality. That changes you right there. You learn a lot of stuff right there that are going to make you different than you were before. Mm -hmm. And then there's deficits and, you know, from brain injury, memory, you know, short-term memory is something I have an issue with and sensory overload. If there's too many conversations going on, around me at the same time, or the lights are too bright, or there's too many noises going on. Back in that career I was telling you about, I could juggle half a dozen balls in the air fast and with precision. And after the brain injury, I couldn't do that. I couldn't juggle those six balls. Without, without them coming down. And so there came, I, I talk about in my show, the four A's of recovery, awareness, acceptance, action, and adaptation. So I had to become aware at some point in that process that I was swimming against, against the stream there, thinking I was going to be able to go back to who I was before that awareness that that wasn't going to happen so I could quit fighting a losing battle. Acceptance, except that I was going to have to change. Now, some people have a really hard time with that acceptance and that's where they start self-medicating or behaving poorly Um going through that tweener stage in a self-harming and impacting others in a harmful, negative way. Hopefully what I try to do in my show is get people to come to 
um, a radical acceptance that maybe the plan you had wasn't God's plan. And um, maybe this was a wake up call that I need to try something different or that there's something in my purpose that needs to be changed. So that's the awareness, the acceptance. Next comes the action. Okay, I'm aware I can't do things exactly like I did before. I have to take one thing and really focus on it to have that precision that I had before. Not six things, one thing, and really focus. And then I'm, you know, able to do that with that that precision. So I had to find that awareness of my new boundaries, the acceptance that I was going to have to change, and then take the action to learn the skills that I didn't just come with. <laughs> um, seek out those skills and that help from people who knew more than me, who had been on this block longer than me. Um, and normally for veterans, for civilians, that isn't found in our traditional medical model. Our traditional medical model is what I call pill pelting. They throw pills at it and that doesn't work. You know, you have to learn skills. So um, I learned a lot of skills. I spent time in a number of different cognitive programs to reteach me. Um, I actually thought I lost my skill set. What I found out is I still had my skill set. I needed what I call the lantern holders on, on my new path, the enlightened ones, um, to be able to show me that I still have my skill set. It just needs to be redirected. Mm -hmm. and then adaptation to feel comfortable with the skin I'm in, with the new skin I'm in, this new incarnation. And, you know, what that meant for me is, you know, I, I, um, my injury happened in 1995. At that time, hard for some people to believe, but there, there wasn't internet. There wasn't iPhones. There wasn't support groups. They didn't know a lot about brain injury. Interesting, they know a lot about heart, diabetes, cancer, but 2.8 million people a year have a brain injury. And so little is known by the public and the traditional medical model. And so zipping up to 2012, I decide to write a book about my experience. And I knew nothing about the brain. All I knew was my story. I had journaled it back when I was sick and out of action for a year. And I had put those notes away back then and went back to my career thinking I could be who mm -hmm. I was before. And it nearly killed me because I couldn't be who I was before. And in my career, you know, it, it involved license, <laughs> a license. 
and big fines and imprisonment if you make a mistake. Um, And so there was a point where I felt like I had to leave before that happened and I had to accept and it was a hard acceptance because that's the only thing I had ever done before, you know. I, I think what you've done, this is kind of interesting that, you know, we were talking about men and women, right? But this is kind of interesting that, because I was going to ask you for advice that you could give the guys, but here's what I think I find it. This is the way the universe works. Your experiences in life with the brain injury, and then the conversation about men and women, you just gave, I was going to ask you for three tips, but you just gave four tips born out of your experience with a brain injury that men and women, but men too, can use as, uh, as the tools to completely turn their life around, not, not perhaps be the victim or fall prey to knuckle dragging, you know, awareness of self, yeah. seeking, seeking authenticity, acceptance to change. Hey, I know I'm being a knuckle dragger. I know I'm playing victim, whatever they're doing, the guys out there accept that you need to change and then take action, you know, execute on it, do something new, learn new behaviors, new ways to act, and then adapt the new self to this renewed sense of purpose. You know, that it's kind of interesting because we, the show we're talking about women on masculinity, but now we're talking about brain injuries and the things that you've learned in your brain injury story is exactly what men with or without a brain injury could do to become better men and better leaders. It's, it's kind of funny how that worked. Well, it's actually meant for all of them and it's not original yeah. because it started with substance abuse. When my show is called Recovery Now, you take anything you can recover from bad role models, for men and my my four a's work for everybody in any situation it's just being adapted right this minute the brain injury because everybody has a come to jesus moment yeah game changing moment in their life and at that time that's when like i said the potholes are falling victim feeling sorry for oneself, um, going down the wrong path with the self-medicating and the self-harming and doing things that aren't productive to ourself or the others that we interact with. And so um, certainly for, for a male and a female, because I, like you said, I do a lot of shows with, with veterans, um, we need to just have that skill set redirected and and just to finish the way that worked for me and then I'll connect it to everything else we're talking about is that so I write I write the book all the way up in 2012 and all I know is my story I don't know anything else about the brain no expert on anything except writing my story so I write this book God works in mysterious ways I had I done it in 97 98 2000 we still wouldn't have had internet and the kind of 
exposure, you know, that we can have now. What we're doing right now didn't exist then. But the guy who started our network had gotten in a horrible car accident. As a result of that car accident and the deficits he had and the change, and we can talk about that in relationships, he lost his, it caused him to have an, uh, a divorce because he was no longer the person his wife thought she married. And instead of working through that, she chose to cut and run. So that left him not only with his brain injury, mm -hmm. but he had gotten married for, for keeps when he made that commitment. And that was taken away. And some of the, anyway, he, he started, he's younger than us. He learned about internet radio. And once a week on Mondays, I think what he was doing was cathartically talking through the changes he was going through because of this incident. And what happened is that people all over the world were contacting him saying, Jesus, I thought I was the only one, mm -hmm. you know, I went through something like that, be it no matter what it is, the brain is the brain is the brain. We all got a different experience. Yes. But the brain is the brain is the brain. So whether it's a car accident, a ruptured brain aneurysm, a blast injury, whatever it is, we've got other ingredients that make our story individual, but the brain is the brain. And so people all over were going, God, my doctor never told me about that. Geez, I was never able to talk to a therapist about this. Well, that's because a therapist never had a brain injury. And a lot of our deficits are invisible. We don't have a tell, like in a lot of other health conditions. And so what he decided to do, while he's in Spokane, Washington, doing that, and I have no idea about it, and I'm over here, I've just write, written a book, um, people started getting a hold of me from traditional media sources, and then from sources like this, internet radio and it was funny you met my husband right before this and and um i got a call from craig the guy who started brain injury radio network and he said i heard an interview that you did and here's what i've been doing and because the need is so great now my calling is to expand this network to seven nights a week the need is there we need to supply support and help. The need is there. And I wondered if you'd like to be one of the original seven hosts. And I said, oh, thanks so much for asking, but I don't have any experience in broadcasting. I didn't even know that internet radio existed until two weeks ago. And I'll never forget the first guy that called me was from down in Texas named James. And he asked me about this internet radio interview. And I answered like an old sales girl would have. Well, of course, I'd love to, James. And then we set up the time and I got off the phone and I went into my husband and I said, Gary, what's internet radio? <laughs> I've got an interview. 
Well, that's I got a, an interview next di- week, and I got a, no idea what that is. That's a perfect example of putting yourself out there, but then adapting to whatever comes. You know, we're getting towards the end of our hour here, Kim. But, you know, so I love the fact that it turned into brain injury, you being one that has experienced that myself and others who might be listening. Um, and I, I had never heard of this, the four A's. So, you know, I learned something here today and I hope that the folks that are listening did too. I just, um, we're going to have to do this again sometime because there's so much more information. There's so much more that we can learn from each other, men and women and women and men. And, and what I learned today and what you taught me, and I'm going to ask you one final question. So get ready, put your thinking cap on. Uh, male maleness or malehood or manhood or whatever you want to call it masculinity is maturity it's communications and if you're in a relationship with a woman it's teamwork and it's also value driven but even on the back side when you started to talk about the brain injury uh, journey it's awareness it's adaptability, acceptance, taking action. You've, you've, you've put a lot of meat on the bones today. But let me ask you this. What do you think, what is, what is your personal mantra as a woman, quote unquote, in a man's world? You know, I like the fact that you, you touched upon victimology or victimhood. But what is your mantra as a woman and what they say is the proverbial man's world. And, Kim, how do you feel about that? I want to make sure I understand your question. But when I first came, and I'll, I'll make it quick, but the end of that story when Craig asked me if I wanted to be a host and I said I had no experience, he said, okay, I'll let you go. He said, oh, wait. By the way, did you have experience being an author before you wrote your book? And I said, no. (laughs) And um, he said, and you do have a brain injury, right? Yes. He said, you're qualified. What night do you want? My mouth just opened and I said, Wednesday. So the point is here, you jump. You don't let your fear hold you back. You jump. And at our first meeting, Again, weirdly, those other hosts were all men and they had TBIs. Now what I have, strokes, aneurysms, are considered underneath the heading of TBI. But back then it was an ABI. I'll explain that another day. One of the guys said, she doesn't deserve to be here. She's not a TBI. She's an ABI. And two of the guys weren't going to accept me because I wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. And this is where a gentleman and a leader, which Craig was in that moment when he said brain injury radio, that was all inclusive. It wasn't TBI radio. It was brain injury radio. And what he told them is he stepped up for me and he said, she's staying and she's going to be good at this and you're going to back off. 
and let her do what she needs to do. Now, I wasn't as sure of me as he was. I didn't even know the difference between a TBI and an ABI. And I didn't even know if I was going to be able to know how to run a studio and do shows. But he stepped up for me. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And since then, you know, I'm director of operations for our network. I've hired, recruited, hired, and trained probably 75 different hosts. I used to do that in the insurance and investment business too. So there's a skill set that wasn't lost networking, putting together a team, teaching a team how to act well together. And if they don't, they've got to compensate, take responsibility, or they got to go. And what I find is a mutual respect for what each other's doing. And again, that teamwork, because if one of us is bent on being the superstar and trampling on the others, the whole house of cards is going to go down. We're all on the same level. And to, to my closing comment on the masculinity and all that is bottom line at the end of the day, we all want to be loved and accepted no matter what our sex is. And our behavior right now as a society is going in opposite direction than being loved, being wanted, being needed, being accepted, being part of a team with a mutual goal where we continue the mission together. People are wanting to compete. They're creating a divisive environment. And I, you know, I think that's being pre-planned to break up the team. When when you break up the team, then somebody else is going to come in and take control. And so the reason why we're the United States or we're the united couple, the man and the woman, is because we have a united mission. That we're going to, the mission is more important than the parts. It's going to take the parts individuating actualizing, willing to compromise and work together to continue and create that mission. And that's Absolutely. the only way that we can be united. Absolutely love that. That's a great message, Kim. Um, unity, men and women, unity. And without unity, then what we have is what we're seeing in this great discord. And I, I think... First of all, I value your time and thank you for being on on WAMP today with me. And all I can say is this, is if we if we work hard and you mentioned work ethic, but if we work hard to truly try to understand each other as people and maybe we put the male female thing on second, but as people, then maybe we can move forward and get somewhere. And it's going to take you pointed this out. It's going to take. And I love that you said this. It's going to take acceptance to change, which really means a willingness to make things better. And there's a word that you stuck in there earlier. I don't know if anybody caught it, 
but you talked about priorities, prioritizing and priorities. It would seem to me, men that are listening, that if we had our priorities in the right place, that the world would be a lot better off. And all I can say, Kim, is, is thank you again for being here. Thank you for operating at a high, high level, even with the aneurysm and all the things that have happened. You're, you are operating in a higher consciousness state, which I think we all need to embrace at times. Critical thinking, higher consciousness, objective reasoning, so many things that have been lost. But um, thanks again. And, and you, you've got the final part. Say what you want, and, and then we'll just close out. And then stay with me after this so we can talk for a few minutes off, off the air. Okay. Uh, along with the four A's, if you want a tip, short things are easier to remember. Um, to tie that together is the how. The how do we do this? Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. What you just said. So when we're communicating and we're trying to learn that, um, I have to be honest about who I am and what I want. Something my dad told me when I was a little girl is that the biggest mistake a woman makes is thinking she's going to change a man. And that's probably true. He was right. You know, he was right. I would have fought you tooth and nail on that, but he was right. And it's probably true the other way, too. Open-mindedness and willingness. I need to be honest about who I am and what I need from you. And you need to do the same. Too often, we're either projecting onto somebody trying to change who they are to suit us, or we're, we're operating on an ideal of who I think you could be, who I could make you into being. Mm -hmm. But we both need to be honest about who we are, what we want, and what we're willing to do to be together and work as a team. And if those things don't line up, we're on the wrong team. Great point. There you have it. Kim Justice on WAMP, the Women on Masculinity podcast show, and, and looking forward to our next time we can speak with each other. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Hey. That was good. There's a lot of meat in there that, that, you know, there was a lot, but you know what? I didn't expect that because there's a lot of intersection between this ride. We call our, you know, our existence and, and the roles that we fill as men and women, you know, there's, you know, you might've said it, but nobody gives us the blueprint when we're born, right? We're just, we, we're, we, we, we come into the world. You know, my dad was a, was a 21-year-old Army lieutenant when I was born. And he had already had two daughters. And nobody gives us the script on what happens. Right. And we think we have it all figured out. And I did until I had more. Thank you for listening to another episode of Well. Without you, we don't exist. We hope the men who joined us today learned some valuable tips to improve and not be ashamed to use them. Be the change, set the example, 
keep going, men. And for the women leaders out there, keep creating and keep helping us men to become even better men, more effective leaders. Thank you. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and lead.